Good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, my name is John Dunning. I work um, with several others that have just been prayed for on, on the campus of Kansas State University with the ministry called Reformed University Fellowship. And summers are weird for us. Um, one, because they're never the same. Um, but this is actually my first Sunday back in about a month. Um, and some of you can relate to that for sure with family traveling and other things going on. Um, for all of us, but it is truly good to be with you. If you have a Bible with you, or if you're faster than your neighbor, grab theirs, and open it up with me to Psalm 110. Um, we might find it uh, at least a little bit ironic this morning that a few days after our nation has celebrated um, treason against a king who is trying to exert authority over us, which we celebrate every year on July 4th, that we turn now to a psalm about kingship. But at the same time, we might resonate with and we might identify with uh, theologian John Calvin's observation from many years ago that everyone flatters himself and carries, as it were, a kingdom in his heart. Each of us knows what it is to long for independence, which really means I want to be in charge. It really means I want to be the king of my world, at least however we want to define that world. We know what, it, what that desire is to want to be in charge. We know what it is to want to be a king. This morning, we turn our attention to Psalm 110, which is about the true king that we, or we are called to serve. What's interesting about this psalm is that in, in some ways it covers almost the whole of the Bible from cover to cover. Now, we won't do that this morning, I promise, even though we don't have to finish at any specific time because there's not a church waiting to meet here, but I promise we won't do that. But Psalm 110 in many ways covers the whole of scripture in just a few short verses. At the, and it, the other interesting piece about this as we approach it is, as you'll hear the words of victory and celebration by the end of the psalm, some have actually speculated that this psalm was actually written as sort of a hype song for God's king, the, king of God's, the king of God's people in the armies as they would go out to war, to sing together, to get their energy up, if you will. Um, so if you're thinking about uh, Eminem's Lose Yourself or Thunderstruck or Welcome to the Jungle, if you're a sports fan, those songs are going to evoke certain kinds of feelings about getting ready for battle, ready for an event. Many actually have speculated that that's what Psalm 110 was written for in its original context. But let's read now together as we consider these words, Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray as we consider together these words. Father, again this morning we ask for the work of your spirit in our midst. We can certainly gain facts, we can gain information, we can gain knowledge about the printed words on the page, but we ask that you would do even more than that in our midst. We ask this morning that by your spirit you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us, that they would guide us, that they would take us to the place where you are, so that we might truly know you, and as your people, that indeed we might be changed. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, trusting in his spirit. 
Amen. A few months ago, uh, I read an, an article written by a small business owner about what it's like to venture out into the world of owning your own business. He likened it to riding on the back of a lion. Because he said this, he said, when you're starting your own business, people look at you and think, wow, you must be creative and handy, and you must have nerves of steel and have the ability to encounter any danger that comes your way, all the unknowns that you're facing, how brave you must be. And he said people have said that to him, said those things to him. But he also commented that what it feels like for him to be starting his own business is also like riding on the back of the lion, except what he thinks is this. I'm on the back of a lion? How did I get here? And I really hope it won't eat me. It's that, it's that feeling of wanting to be in charge of something and having the, the pressure and the responsibility of being in charge of something and realizing all that that entails. Is this thing going to consume my life? My oldest brother, who's been running his own, his own business for nearly 30 years now, I remember him saying to me early on that people would say some similar things to him. And in particular, what he would hear a lot is, gee, it must be great to work for yourself. All of that freedom and all that carefreeness. And, and what he realized quickly after doing this, with even in the first five years was, yes, there are freedom and there are perks to running your own business, but you don't really work for yourself. Because in some ways, you work and report to everybody. Because all of your clients, everybody that you're trying to, to buy into what you're selling and what you're doing, this, whether it's a service or a product, you are beholden to all kinds of people. You have many, many, many bosses. It's the opposite of the freedom that many people picture. We want to be kings, don't we? We want to rule our kingdoms. We want to be in charge. We want that kind of what we understand to be freedom. And yet at the same time, we realize that oftentimes the responsibility that comes with such freedom can crush us. It doesn't have to be running your own business, though. It could be almost anything that you venture into. Home ownership can feel this way. When you realize that something breaks and there's no landlord to call because you're the landlord of your own place and you have to fix it, or you have to pay to get it fixed, that's going to cost you. Marriage can feel like that as you venture into something that is great and amazing and awesome, and if we're honest, at the same time, can be terrifying because you're responsible for another human being. Parenthood can be the same way. Anything that we venture into, starting co college career, starting graduate school, starting high school, any of those things can feel this way when you realize the responsibility that is now upon you. You can feel internally confused, and there are even moments when you can feel threatened from outside. What are these people around me gonna do to me in this situation? What's gonna happen? The unknown can be terrifying. Whatever those moments are for you, even as you long for that kind of freedom and responsibility, when you face it, what we're really longing for is we're longing for a king. We're longing for the one that would give us internal sanity and unity, and we're longing for the one that would protect us from any dangers that would come from outside. We're longing for a king, and that's the picture that we're given in Psalm 110. I want to tell you up front, the king that we long for, the king that is given to us, the king that we need, is no other than the Lord Jesus himself. Now, having read Psalm 110 with me just a few minutes ago, you realize that the name Jesus never comes about, does it? But we know that because of the way this psalm is used in the rest of Scripture. This word, these words were, would have been written around a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. 
And look with me at verse 1. David, King, the King David, the king of God's people, the, the, really the hero of the Jewish people of the nation of Israel at the time and even into modern day, writes these words, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, a thousand years after these words were written, Jesus was continually questioned by the religious leaders of his day. What about this verse, Jesus? Or what about this? Or what would you do in this situation? And not long before he was crucified, Jesus turned the tables and he quoted verse 1 of Psalm 110. And the gospel writers tell us that he began to ask questions. What is this verse about? And Jesus did so to say to his hearers, you need to know that this verse is about me. Because what we read in verse 1 of Psalm 110 is we hear, we hear David speaking of the Lord in capital letters there, speaking of the covenant Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. And the question that Jesus asked is this, who is David's Lord here? Who is my Lord? One, one writer translate, or one pastor once translated those, the, the, the second word there, the, my Lord, as the master whom I serve. David is the king of Israel, all-powerful, second only to God. And he's acknowledging that he himself has another Lord. And Jesus is one, the one who speaks in and says, this is about me. What do we learn about the king that is given to us? I want to begin by, by helping us focus on the first few verses of this psalm and tell you that Jesus here is pictured as the reigning king. Jesus is the one who is in charge. David makes this reference to my Lord here. He's the king of God's people, as I've said, and yet there's someone that he calls master in addition here. Well, we, as we keep reading, he says in, again in verse 1, the, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. You see, God is speaking to the Lord. God is speaking to Jesus, saying to him, right here, Jesus, sit right here. It's the place of honor. It's the place of power. It's communicating to all in the kingdom. When a king would do that, it's communicating to all in the kingdom that, that there is no difference between the, the authority of the two people. When he says, sit at my right hand, he's saying, when you speak in my kingdom, it's as if I am speaking. Jesus is the ruling king. Jesus is the reigning king. And what David wants us to know is that this one has the authority over the kingdom. We, it, he adds to this in uh, verse 2. He says, The Lord sends forth from Zion. Zion is the name of Jerusalem, the place where God himself dwelled among his people. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The very symbol of the authority of the king, that whoever possessed that scepter, that staff, would be obeyed throughout the kingdom without question. Jesus reigns with authority. He has the right to rule. But notice what comes next in the last part of verse 2. The command goes out to this one sitting at the right hand of the Lord, rule in the midst of your enemies. He has the right to rule even where the enemies of God dwell. Even where the enemies of that king are, that this one with the scepter, with the authority, has the right to rule, has the say-so, no matter where he goes. Without question, he must be obeyed. Now think about that for a moment. If you remember in, in Captain America, when, in, in the Avengers, recent Avengers movie, Captain America gets, early in the movie, he gets sent behind enemy lines to rescue the prisoners, right? He's sent into enemy territory. He dives out of the plane without a parachute. 
and, and you're thinking, okay, the movie's named after him. This is a franchise. He's probably not going to die. But, you know, there's, so there's at least 75% chance he's going to be able to get out of this unharmed. But there's still that little bit of question, how's he going to do it? With his craftiness, with his strength, with his speed, with his prowess, with his military insight, what is he going to do? And yet what is pictured for us in verse 2, when he says rule in the midst of your enemies, is far more even than that. Because it's not only that the hero is crafty enough to escape by his strength and by his power and by his insight. What's deeper is proclaimed here is that Jesus has the authority even in the places where the enemies are. That it's more than just he has the ability to defeat. He has the absolute right. It is his place to be in charge even where the enemies of God dwell. But there's something more that we see in his ruling, isn't there? Look at verse 3. Your people, David writes, will offer themselves today, will offer yourselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Your people will offer themselves the king has authority and the, the ruling king has an army. He's raising up a people who would be his. Now David tells us they offer themselves freely. It's fully volunteer. It is, they are not manipulated. They are not coerced. They are not tricked into service. They offer themselves freely, willing to sacrifice themselves for their king. Notice how he develops the picture of this army again in verse 3. They will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. There's a beauty to the army. There's a perfection to the army. There's a holiness to those that God has called to be in his army, that Jesus is calling to be his. And in that same vein, they're described this way in the third part of verse 3. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This army... This young, strong army will be like the dew scattered on the lawn, scattered on the grass along the fields. It will be abundant. It will be refreshed. It will be ready for the new day to face whatever beholds it. This is the army that Jesus himself is gathering around him, strong, refreshed, and spread out. Jesus is the ruling king. Beloved, Jesus is the king who's in charge, even where his enemies are. There is no place that you can go in this world where Jesus is not the authoritative one. There's no occupation, there's no workplace, there's no cubicle, there's no desk. No matter who is around you, Jesus is still in charge. There's no awkward family situation that you can walk into that Jesus is not in charge of. There are none who could stand against him who can resist his authority in your life absolutely done. Jesus is in charge no matter where you go. But know also that Jesus is raising his army. That you are not alone. That he is perfecting you. That he is declaring you holy and beautiful and righteous and true. Not because of what you accomplish. Not because of your ability or strength or wisdom or insight or wealth or anything that you could accrue on your own. But because he is declaring you to be his. And you are not alone. Read recently about a situation in the military ruler general Napoleon's life, where near the end of his career, after he had conquered much and defeated many and built the reputation of being a master general and a master schemer and, and planner of war, 
He's meeting with a, a, a no, well-known diplomat from Europe in the time who was trying to figure out how to make all the killing and stuff stop, how to, how to create peace. And Napoleon said, I, I want peace as well. And so they're having this conversation. And at one point, this famed diplomat is trying to get the upper hand over Napoleon. And Napoleon stops in mid-sentence and says this. He says, you are no soldier, and you do not know what goes on in the mind of a soldier. I was brought up in the field, and a man such as I am does not concern himself much about the lives of a million men. Napoleon is saying in his arrogance, what are a million men to me? I can do what I want. And legend has it, now this part may not be as true as the first part, but legend has it that Napoleon went on to say this, you cannot stop me. I can spend 30,000 men a month. Part of his reputation is that of arrogance. Do you hear what he's describing? What are a million men to me? I spend 30,000 a month. They do my bidding. They do what I want. I can send them to battle and they may die, but I have more and more and more and more. Of course, history tells us that eventually he was stopped, that he was defeated. He was sent into exile. And yet how he viewed his soldiers, how he viewed his army, how he viewed his power, in his mind was that it was limitless and unending. And yet there's a distance that we see because he sees his army as, what, as those that he can manipulate for his benefit, for his power. But notice where David goes on in Psalm 110 to, describe, to continue to describe Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord says to this one, to David's Lord, and he says, you are a priest. You are not separate from your people. The priest in the, in the Old Testament times was, was the man who would represent the people before God and would represent God before his people. You see, the priest had to identify with the people of God. The king is not saying, I can spend what I want however I want. The king is saying, <coughs> I'm also their priest, and I'm with them. Now, what's funny and maybe confusing to you is what is, the, what is this business about the order of Melchizedek? I told you that this psalm covers almost the Bible from cover to cover. In Genesis 14, Abraham, a man named Abraham, had to, his, his nephew Lot um, was conquered by some neighboring kings, and Abraham rallied his troops and got his people together, and they, they were able to defeat their enemies and rescue their son, his nephew Lot from captivity. Curiously, after the battle is done, Abraham is approaching the king that he's just defeated, and they're going to make amends or whatever they do after a battle. Abraham is the victor, but then this man named Melchizedek just shows up. His name, Melchizedek, literally means king of righteousness. He's called also the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. And curiously, without question, Abraham offers to this one Melchizedek, who shows up out of nowhere, he offers to him a tenth of all his winnings. He gives a tithe. He gives an offering to this priest. And then the priest blesses Abraham. Again, to say, there's someone greater than you, Abraham. Even in the midst of your victory, there's someone greater. And David writes here that the Lord has spoken to his Lord to say, you are a priest forever after the order of that one Melchizedek. Again, some thousand plus years later, the New Testament takes this verse and explains what's happening. In particular, in, in Hebrews chapter 7, what we read is that, that this one Melchizedek 
um, in somewhat creative terms, he says he's without father or without mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. In other words, he shows up out of nowhere. There's no explanation given this one Melchizedek. He continues a priest forever, writer of Hebrews writes in 7.3. He goes on in the same chapter to say he's a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He's saying Melchizedek shows up as a priest of God, not because he's born in the right family, but because he was declared to be the priest forever. This unchanging one is the one who is also described, who Jesus is described as as well. You see, Jesus is not only the ruling king, he's the present king. If you think back to verse 1, even how it's described in the second part, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The New Testament takes this and and says to us, that is where Jesus is now. Having died on the cross, having been raised from the dead, having ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. To tell us this unchanging one, this never-ending priesthood, is the one for us here and now who is our present king. He is the one ruling. He is the one reigning over all things. In fact, again, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that he is, he is sitting there at the right hand of God. And he also tells us that in Romans 8 that he is the one who is interceding for us at the right hand of God. He is the present king. The work is accomplished. His work is accomplished. He's at the right hand of the Father. And he's interceding for you. Beloved, your king is for you. He's not against you. He is praying for you as you struggle. Even as you don't know how to pray for yourself or your loved ones, he is the one who is praying for you. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament and the way the priesthood worked, the priests never sat down. There were no chairs in the temple or the tabernacle because there was always work to be done. But Jesus is seated because the work is finished. There's nothing left for you to earn. There's nothing left for you to accomplish. There's nothing left for you to do. And this will not change. Your ruling king is your present king. But notice in the last few verses how this psalm ends for us. The image of these final three verses almost don't need an explanation because it's clear what's happening that we see the ruling present king is the one who is conquering. Again, look at verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. The conquering king is the victorious one. Victorious because God himself is the one who's doing battle here. The Lord is the one giving victory. Do you see that? None will stand against him. He has the authority. He has the presence. And he will do what he set out to do. Across the globe, none will eternally and finally stand against him is what he wants us to know. And it is clear, even though he's raised an army, even though he's set the king at his right hand, it is God himself who is doing the battle here. It is he who's accomplishing what he set out to accomplish. And then look at verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He will be victorious. He will lift up his head in honor and joy and celebration as the one who has defeated all of his enemies. None can stand against him. 
When I was in sixth grade, the elementary school I went to had a tradition that we would do a kids versus parents basketball game every, every spring as the sixth graders were about to leave to head to junior high. And of course, we sixth graders in our might were convinced that we could win easily because our parents looked to them, you know, even though I'm, not, I'm that age now, um, they looked to us like they were ancient and there's no way that they could be fast enough. But our parents' team had a ringer because it was the parents and teachers against the students. And my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Reeder, has a, had a husband who played semi-pro basketball. <laughs> and so I was the biggest guy on my team and I, I walked up to the, to the center of the court for the tip-off and thinking, I got this, no problem. I wasn't this tall then, and I still can't jump now. Mr. Reeder jumped with ease, and all I can remember is kind of slamming against his body as he jumped for the ball, and easily went down the court and slam dunked it into the basketball hoop with very minimal effort. We were toast. There was no way that the sixth graders were gonna win this game. By himself, he could have defeated us with ease. It's the picture of the ruling king, isn't it? It's as if a grown professional athlete is playing an elementary school kid in a sport. The words that show up again are very clear. He will shatter, there will be corpses, there will be bodies, he will execute judgment even among the nations. He will be victorious, none will stand against him. There is a fight, beloved, and know that the Lord is the one doing the fighting. It's the theme that we hear throughout the Old Testament as God promises a land for his people and he says, go in and conquer and take the land. But no, never forget, I am the one who's giving it to you. And know, beloved, that he will win. There's no force of evil that can stand against him. I know the reality of our lives says there's much evil in this world because there is evil in this world. There's much that defeats us, that frustrates us, that scares us. And we are finite creatures, and that's legitimate. And yet the message of the Bible over and over again is that nothing will stand against the king. So what do we do with this? I want to highlight three things as we finish this up, um, really in, in large part from the rest of Scripture. The first thing I want you to know this morning is that we have an enemy, and the Bible is honest about that. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present aid, present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Your life may feel like you're fighting against something because you are. You have an enemy. We read in one of the, either first or second Peter, but that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour the people of God. There, is, there are forces that stand against you. You have an enemy. But your enemy is not your neighbor. Your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is not your parents. It's not your children. Though it may feel like that often, your enemy is something far greater. We have an enemy. But not to dismiss that, but to look at it from another angle, you also have to know that the Bible says that we are part of the enemy. We read a portion of these verses earlier in the service, so very appropriately so. But I want to point you again back to Romans chapter 5. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You have an enemy, but apart from Jesus, you're also an enemy of God. You need to be defeated. You need to be conquered. And Jesus, out of love for you, and love for the Father, and love from the Spirit for you, came to defeat you. Because you want to be a king. You want to be in charge. But there's only one king. And the third thing I want to tell you is this. Your call is to run to that king. If you, my wife and I were fa- have been fans of the Netflix show The Crown, which tells the story of Queen, Eliz- Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth II, and her reign. It begins just before her coronation, actually begins with her marriage. And in the v- end of the first episode, her father, King George V, is having a conversation with Elizabeth's new husband, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. And the king is trying to help. They, they know at this point that the king's health is not good. And they know that Elizabeth is the next in succession. And the king is trying to prepare his son-in-law for what comes next and what this will mean for him. And he says this to him. He says, you understand the titles, the dukedoms that you've been given, everything that's been given to you. They're not your job, the king says. He goes on to say this. He says, she, referencing the the would-be queen, she is the job. She is the essence of your duty, loving her, protecting her. Of course, you'll miss your career, he says, but doing this for her, for me, there may be no greater act of patriotism or of love. You see, the king wants the future husband of the queen to understand it's not his job, it's not his duty, it's not his titles that matter. What matters is her, the queen, the one who rules, the one with authority, the one with power. She is his job. Beloved, Scripture calls us to our king to love him, yes, to serve him, yes, to strive to be like him. But before anything, and the call is to him, to be with him, to love him, and to serve him. Jesus is this king. He's the one with authority and rules. He's the one who's with you as your priest. And he's the one who will be victorious. Let's pray. Eternal God, you've appointed your only son, Jesus, to be our king and our priest, that we might be sanctified by the sacrifice of his body upon the cross. Grant that we, may be, that we may be so participants of his benefits that we may renounce our own selves and serve him in all holiness and purity of life. That we may offer up spiritual sacrifices that may be pleasant and acceptable unto you. We pray this through that same Jesus Christ. Amen.